Education. It's the most important investment you can make in your future. Because your future is where you get away from your present. And nobody wants to live in the present. I mean, here? Here is terrifying. Here is low wages and dead-end jobs and paying rent to the man while you build nothing for yourself and your family. So go to college. Get a degree. Get two. Just keep spending your money on classes and courses and higher degrees. And hey, we know you can't pay for it, so we're here to help. I can't even pay my student loan back because I don't make enough. My student loan, if I was to do it, would be more than my mortgage. It would be just as much as my monthly bills. Apply now. This is Indebted, South Carolina Public Radio's deep dive into the ecosystem of debt in the Palmetto State. I'm Scott Morgan. In this episode, student loan debt in South Carolina, one of the worst places in the world for outstanding college financing burden. It's pretty bad here for everybody, but it's actually a lot worse if you're black. You know, I have to confess something. Before I ever got to South Carolina, I had no idea what color garnet was. I mean, it's burgundy, and to a greater extent, red. But what do I know? We'll go with garnet. Anyway, there's a lot of garnet here. And gold, of course, considering we're sitting in on Winthrop University's graduate student commencement ceremony. Lovely ceremony, by the way. Lots of happy, sad faces. You know, happy to be through it, sad this chapter's over. I don't want to be that guy and ruin anybody's day, so I don't go up and ask any of these brand new doctors and master's degree holders about what's really in their heads. I would wager, however, that they got their mind on their money and their money on their mind. Specifically, I'm wondering how many of these ladies and gentlemen are thinking about how big a financial hole they're in from taking out a loan to pay for the right to wear those gold and garnet robes. Not that that's a shot at Winthrop, of course. It's a fine school with a beautiful campus. I'm just saying it's not free to go here, just like it's not free to go anywhere. And I guess what I'm really trying to say is it doesn't matter whether your college colors are gold or garnet or orange or teal or polka dot. Going to college is really expensive, and going to grad school is really, really expensive. It's a little over 100000 but a lot of it is interest. Boy, there's a lot to unpack in that 14 words, huh? A little over $100,000 is not Cheryl Murdoch's mortgage. That's the size of her student loan debt for grad school. Not at Winthrop, by the way. Cheryl took that loan out at 28, and because the interest is so high... She's still paying it in her early 40s. I was under the income-driven repayment plan, and I had my payments deferred for a little bit because I can't afford to pay almost $900 a month right now just for student loan payments. So, $900 a month. True story. My mortgage on my house, where I keep my socks and Cheerios, is $375 a month. I could buy my house twice, and Cheryl Murdoch would still be paying more a month to have already gone to school and graduated. That's what student loan debt looks like for people trying to invest in themselves. Now, fortunately for people like Cheryl, there are debt relief measures like deferment. Federal student loan payments can be deferred, meaning you can suspend making payments, but only if you can show a legit reason, like a hardship that would keep you from paying. 
Snag, it's only temporary. You will have to start paying it back at some point. Also, Snag, depending on the type of loan you have, the interest could keep accruing while your payments are paused. That's what student loans look like for Brittany Daniels, who had her undergrad payments paused on $30,000, but not paused on the interest. Before it was zero, they sent me something saying that my payments were like 200 a month. But I called and I was like, hey, so they told me to fill out the paperwork and now it's back at zero. But you know the interest is adding up, yep. So in the next couple of years, instead of 30000 it'll be 40 thousand. Another relief measure offered through the federal government is the Income Driven Repayment Plan, or IDRP. Pretty much exactly what it sounds like. The amount you pay every month is a small piece of your discretionary income. Snag, you probably need to make a lot less money than you'd like in order to qualify for it. Think of it like food stamps. You can't get supplemental nutrition assistance if you make even $1 too much. Also, Snag, just because your payments are lower in the IDRP doesn't mean you're also not still accruing interest on that loan. Because whether your payments are paused or reduced doesn't matter. Because your student loan is almost certainly front-loaded. And front-loaded loan is just a $20 way of saying you pay the interest before you can start paying down the principal. So the longer you take to pay off that loan, the more interest builds up for you to pay off before you ever get to the tuition and fees your institution of higher education has tagged you with. That's how lenders recover their investment as early as possible. And if you default, they usually just sell the debt to a debt buyer, who's now going to demand front-loaded payments while your credit score gets mugged in a dirty alley. And if all that makes your head spin, remember that you're 18 years old when lenders start throwing stuff like this at you. We was actually in a room, it was like several of us, my freshman year of college, and they was telling us, your parents need to sign this paper. It wasn't like my mom was there to actually tell me, no, this is not what you need to do at this time. I don't know if you ever took the free lunch and got a timeshare pitch for it, but that's about what it sounds like. They went through it so fast, even when they were telling you what type of loans to get. Everything just went so fast. And then the next thing they said, if you have questions, of course you're not going to ask questions in front of, you 18 years old. You're not going to ask these questions in front of a whole bunch of people and make it seem like you're the dumb one. By the way, you might have noticed I haven't told you who's talking. The reason for that will be a lot clearer a couple episodes from now, and for now, we'll just leave it at that. Suffice to say, our student-indebted friend used to be 18, and she's now got a front-row seat to what 18 looks like from the other side of the equation. Her son was 18 when we spoke, and the thought of him sitting in front of a big red sign here sticker gave her pause. My 18-year-old, he, he's a man-child. He, he's not responsible enough to make a decision about his whole life. Young adults in or entering college hear all kinds of stuff about financial aid. Some of it loans, some of it grants and scholarships. And those are great because, well, they're grants. You don't have to pay anybody back. But as one progresses through college, grant opportunities tend to fade. That backs a lot of students who relied on those grants into a corner, where their only options left are either lotto or student loans. That's what happened to Cheryl Murdoch, who was required to get a master's degree to get her job in substance abuse counseling at the Access One Center of Barnwell County. You're almost about to graduate, so they're giving you less and less money, so they're kind of, in a sense, forcing you to get the student loan because... Of course, I'm a single mom. 
I'm working a low-paying job, so, you know, it's not like I could pay for it out of pocket. So, I, I, like I said, I didn't have a choice because if I did, I would not because, you know, my mom told me going in, you know, stay away from those student loans. Because Cheryl works for a non-private employer, she's able to pursue something called loan forgiveness. It's another federal relief measure for student borrowers who work in the government or nonprofit space that lets you pay off the loan in 10 years. Snag, you have to stay in the government or nonprofit sector the entire time. It's kind of a reward for community service. And it's noble and eventually liberating as long as you keep making your payments. Because if you miss so much as one out of that 120, the clock resets to zero and puts another 10 straight years of payments on the board for you. But... Most nonprofit and government jobs pay a lot less than large private employers. And 10 years is a long time to never miss a payment on anything. If I ever accomplish it myself, I'll be sure to let you know. Not every foray into loan forgiveness goes as smoothly as one would hope. Take the story of Annie Walters, whose student loan debt is so high, she's not even sure what she owes. Two, two hundred something thousand, a hundred something thousand. It's a large amount because I started, I got my associate degree. I have a bachelor, two masters, and I'm working on my PhD. And all of this was done so I can afford a better life because I was a single parent, put myself back to school, raising three boys. So I realized if I didn't do something, I was going to be always be in that low economic status. And I didn't want that. I'm struck by two things about Annie. First is how straight a shooter she is. I mean, damn. Second, this is a woman who looked at her life in Barnwell County and realized she could take it one of two ways. End up broke and possibly dead by now, or try to make a better world for herself and her sons. Annie opted to go into the counseling field, focusing on single parents who struggle to give their families good lives. Today, she works for a nonprofit called Save the Children, where loan forgiveness is an option, but still an expensive one, considering how much money Annie owes on her education. And that's what's actually costing her a part of her education. In trying to do good by herself and her family, not to mention her neighbors, Annie had to give up on that doctorate she wanted, the one she hoped would put her in the best position possible. I didn't finish my PhD, not because, for some reason, it became too expensive. And my children was growing up, and I wanted to support them in their extracurricular activities. And my PhD became overwhelming. The subtext, of course, is that borrowers who do everything according to plan and end up living with persistent, sometimes massive student debts anyway, can't get to a better life because their credit records are pocked with student loans. And that doesn't just stick another bill on the list. It keeps people from being able to build wealth, which is one of the benefits people seeking college education want from their investments in themselves. That's what's been happening to Brittany Daniels. Every so often I have to do like an income-driven plan or forbearance, so I won't go or they won't go into default because it does <laughs> affect your credit. Because I don't experience a lot of that with my credit score decreasing a lot. I tried to do like a home ownership process one time before, and I had a credit specialist person that actually looked at my, and he said, well, you can't really do a whole lot with your situation because you have a lot of student loans that you have to clear. So that kind of stopped my process there. 
Everyone you've heard from in this episode so far lives or works in Barnwell County, a place we'll be traveling deep into the heart of in the next episode of this podcast, by the way. And the fact that they're all from Barnwell is significant for a couple reasons. One is that it's hard enough to build wealth from the ground up without student loans suffocating borrowers' ability to get anywhere near the promises of their degrees. And two is because just about half of Barnwell County's residents are Black. We know from surveys that look at wealth in the United States that white people who drop out of high school have more wealth than the average Black student loan borrower who graduates from college. Whitney Barkley of the Center for Responsible Lending. There are a lot of reasons for that. There's 400 years of history from slavery through Jim Crow that have interrupted wealth building for Black Americans. And it's also true that Black Americans tend to live in communities where their best options for loans and other things to try and make it on a day-to-day basis are wealth stripping products that mean that Black borrowers have to borrow more when they go to college, and it tends to take them longer to pay it off. And all of that contributes to the lack of ability to build wealth, even though they have a college degree. In 2014, the American Enterprise Institute, a right-leaning think tank, published a piece questioning whether a college degree really is the road out of poverty as it's marketed. Two years later, the Brookings Institute, a left-leaning think tank, essentially asked the same question and essentially came to the same conclusion, which is that if you're poor, black or not, shelling out for the price of a decent house just to walk away with an English degree is gonna dog you for decades. But for black borrowers, default looms at a much higher rate than it does for white borrowers, regardless of how much money anyone makes after college. A 2019 study by the U.S. Department of Education found that one in three black students who borrow for school default within six years. For white borrowers, that number is closer to one in 10. And it's not like white people are doing that great with student loans to begin with. I know a lot of nurse practitioners, that's what I'm trying to do. And they encouraged me to go to school and do this. You know, they kind of had that confidence in me that I could do it. But one of the things they also freely talked about was the fact that they pay so much in student loans. And even though it might seem like they make a lot of money, it takes them so long in their career to get to a point where they can even enjoy their lifestyle that they want to live with their money because they're paying so much in student loans. It, that weighed heavily into my decision to, do, to come here to start my courses because I don't want to be, I don't want anybody to be so in a hole that, you know, it's like, it's almost impossible to get out of nowadays too. I'm sitting in the Learning Commons, a kind of next-gen student center at York Technical College in Rock Hill, and I'm talking with Raul Zambrano. Raul is not the typical tech school kid. At 30, he's already got a college degree and he's worked as a clinical mental health counselor. He's back in school to switch careers because his current field pays in dog biscuits. He lives with his in-laws, trying to get by, and yet counts himself exquisitely lucky because his parents picked up the tab for his first run through college, which also leaves him feeling like he's never really gotten out of high school. My family's still not done paying for my undergraduate degree. They're still paying for it. And as much as I have a lot of gratitude to my parents for doing that, I mean, I, I feel guilty about it actually every day because I know it's... They could be doing a lot of other things with that money. You know, they could have retired. My dad could have probably retired if 
five years ago if he wanted to, but he's pushed his retirement out a few years just so that they can keep paying. And um, yeah, it, it kind of, it really does suck to think about it that way, but um, that's why coming here, it was, it was really a no brainer for me. This is the calculus that people like Raul are doing in reaction to the alarmingly bad statistics that put South Carolina down among the worst places for student loan debt in the world. Now, I grant you stats can be dodgy, as can be reports that cite them, especially when they come from private companies connected to loans. But here's the interesting part. It doesn't matter where you look. Private lender websites, nonprofit maps, stats from the federal government, every one of them points to enormous student loan debt in the U.S. The St. Louis Fed, for example, has a graph measuring rising student loan debt from 2006 to 2022. That thing moves north at like a 45-degree angle. At latest count, Americans owe $1.74 trillion, trillion dollars in student debt. No joke, you'd have to count for like 30,000 years to count that high. And that's if you never eat, sleep, or watch The Hunt for Red October again. Which, come on. LendingTree, private lender, ranked South Carolina fifth in the nation for federally managed student loan balances in 2022. That's fifth worst, in case you're confused. 713,000 borrowers owing $27 billion. For reference, last year's budget to operate this whole state was $34 billion. And again, I'm a data geek. I could bury you in numbers and reports. But like I said, it all makes the same point college can be really, really expensive to attend. But why, though? Why is college so expensive? This is really something that even experts don't have a single answer for. Beth Akers is an expert nevertheless, an economist with the aforementioned American Enterprise Institute, and frequent asker of the question, why is college so expensive? Now, given how much answer there is to that question, we're going to have to take this in parts. And I'd like to start by skewering those who think that college kids today can pay their way through school like it's still 1975. Inflation of tuition has outpaced any other major segment of the economy. Sandy Baum is an economist who works on higher ed costs, and she did a really great study recently where she looked at whether or not students today could finance paying for school by working a part-time job in the same way that all of the politicians always like to pontificate about how they did when they went to school. It turns out that the numbers are as you described and that it's not possible because wages have not increased at the same rate as the cost of education and it's not feasible. There aren't, simply aren't enough hours in the day for someone to work their way through school as they've done in the past. So that explains the big shift to the reliance on debt that we have seen. The numbers I described are from a study at Georgetown University in 2021. The Center on Education and Workforce calculated that from 1980 to 2018, earnings for 20-somethings rose 19%. And in that same time, the cost of college rose almost 170%, higher and faster than even the housing market, which young people also can't afford, in case you're keeping score. But none of that yet answers the question why college is so damn expensive. Doesn't mean we're short on theories, though. One of them that's popular is looking at college campuses and saying, hey, they've got a climbing wall. Hey, they've got a lazy river. This has got to be why college is so expensive, all these fancy amenities. Statistically speaking, those things don't drive up the per student cost of education by a huge margin. So it certainly can explain the trend that we've seen across time. 
People also will blame the expansion of the bureaucracy on campus, which is all of these new deans, deans of you know outdoor activities, deans of diversity, deans of rock climbing. I don't know what all these deans are for, but you know that has some credibility as an argument. You know, it's increasing the cost as well, but again, not explaining a huge fraction of the increase that we've seen across time. There is a theory that holds a little bit more water for her. I wouldn't call it a hot take exactly, but I can see it being something people throw into a fight over all this. So we used to send just the most privileged and the brightest and the most academically advanced students off to college. And as we try to expand the pool of students that colleges are serving, they necessarily need to offer additional services to support those students. Um, And colleges will tell you, administrators will tell you that all of those deans now exist to support the additional services that this new pool of students really needs. You might hear some people talking about levels of food insecurity on campuses. Campuses are sometimes now offering food pantries and childcare and and all sorts of social services um, that are certainly driving up the cost. To what extent, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be the overwhelming answer. Now the hot take. My feeling is that the reason college continues to be more expensive year after year is that people are willing to pay it. (laughs) And they're willing to pay it, I fear, because we have oversold a college degree as being a necessary part of the American dream. Not a lot of people want to come out and say that. But for Dr. Akers, this idea that college has turned into some kind of sales pitch for the American dream is central to the argument about why college costs so much to go. If we've sold people on the idea that a bachelor's degree is just like a necessary piece of, you know, being a productive member of society. You know, we we know that's not true. Lots of people exist in our economy without bachelor's degrees. And so are we doing a disservice to people by sending that message, right? And that, as a result, driving up the cost of education. That's concerning to me. Anybody who's paying for a degree and is not basing that willingness to pay on the experiences of earlier generations of students and what they have been able to earn, that's that's the problem that I'm concerned about. And it's that opaqueness of pricing in higher ed that I think is contributing in a problematic or concerning way to the inflation that we've seen. Opaque is a good word. Confusing is an equally good word if you're talking about the way colleges price their offerings. There's the sticker price to start, which is the price that you can find listed in those college index books or on the college's website. But the price that the student's actually gonna pay just for tuition and fees is called the net price. And that's the sticker price minus any individual specific institution discounts. And this is a practice that institutions use that's really what economists would call price discrimination. That is, I look at the institution, at each of the students that apply to come here, and I think to myself, what is the highest dollar that they would pay to enroll? What's the highest that they'd be able to afford to pay to enroll? And I give them discounts so that their net price comes out to be that number. And that's the game that all colleges use to price enrollment. Lost. Now imagine you're 18 and looking for a college to go to that would teach you all about things like price discrimination and market flux. You don't just know stuff like that. Just like you don't get to know how much you'll really pay to a given school until you apply and get accepted. And by the way, college application fees can run like 90 bucks a pop. That ain't small money if you don't come from a lot of it. 
So you might just end up limiting the number and types of schools that you apply to because you can't afford to shop around. And that's not factoring in campus tours and SAT tests and prep courses that can run you a couple thousand dollars, which you either take and maybe score a scholarship or a grant to help get you through at least the first couple terms at school, or you take your chances without them and probably end up mortgaging your education for twice what I paid to mortgage my house. And all of that caps us off with the question we really need to ask. Despite the hefty price tag, the weird pricing, the confusing and sometimes outright predatory sales pitches, is college worth it? The average borrower goes on to earn an income that's sufficiently higher than what they would have made as a high school graduate that it's worthwhile for them to make those loan payments in a certain way. But investment in education is not a sure thing. And some people make that investment of time and money and they don't see that typical return. Some end up financially worse off than where they started. You know, when I sat down with all the borrowers you heard in the first half of this episode, I asked every single one of them if they felt they'd been sold a lemon. To my surprise, none of them said yes. Despite what they owe and feel like they always will, they all said they're happy they did it because of what it means to them to have a college education as an achievement, as the first in the family to ever attain one, as a job necessity, as a sign of upward mobility, as a piece of the American dream. But they all said the system was broken, too. They told me stories of navigating dense paperwork and of hearing slick presentations about realizing that for all its noble intentions, college is, at its heart, a business. It exists to sell you something, and it can set whatever price it feels it can get. And I was going to leave it there for the most part, but then I realized I wanted to get one last perspective from someone for whom the system has always been a rough ride. Pamela McKnight, who also works for Access One and is the person who introduced me to all the borrowers in debt you've heard in this episode. So given that this episode wouldn't exist without her help and that she wouldn't have her job without her degrees, I asked Pam if she thought college was worth it. I think it's a double-edged sword. It opens doors. It gives you opportunity because, as you know, when you go and look for a position, you know, having a said post-grad or what have you uh, degree actually, you know, makes it more easier for you to actually get at the table to to apply for these positions. Um, But when you subtract the (laughs) educational uh, debt from your income, that takes you down a bit, (laughs) Um, especially if you're in situations where you have the balloon payments or something like that when it gets to be a little crazy. So I don't know. I'm uh, I'm, going to have to be like indifferent on that because I just feel like it's a person like me uh, for a long time I dreamt to uh, you know go after my doctorate or whatever but now I see I I feel it's not worth it cost wise. Well I don't know if that's a hot take either but I'm pretty sure Pam's not the only one who feels it. On the next episode of Indebted a look into the roots and scope of poverty that drive persistent debt and the inability for poor communities to build wealth. Uh, industry recruitment the, the area, the school district's ability to attract better teachers and have um, better resources. Uh, we remember a time going through from the various school districts, you know, there's some that had the, the iPads and the whiteboards, et cetera, and things, and then the other school districts, I mean, you know, pretty much chalk, and those two things happening at the same time uh, was very, very striking. Barnwell, next time on Indebted. 
Indebted is a production of South Carolina Public Radio made possible by contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. Our producer is A.T. Shire, executive producer Sean Birch. Our fact checker is Keelan Bailey. I'd like to thank my guests for sharing their stories and perspectives. Cheryl Murdoch, Brittany Daniels, Annie Walters, Raul Zambrano, and our unnamed guest. Thanks, too, to Whitney Barkley and Beth Akers for their insights. And a special thank you to Pam McKnight for putting me in front of those neighbors who shared their stories for this and other episodes of this podcast. You can find other episodes of Indebted and additional stories and resources on our website, southcarolinapublicradio.org slash indebted, where you can listen and share as many times as you like. You can also subscribe to Indebted wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Morgan. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and be good to the world.